Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we are going to be answering questions and running off onto crazy tangents, which is how it always goes. I haven't done one of these for a little while, so I feel kind of like uh, like I'm going swimming without my uh, armbands. Uh, what I've been doing recently, obviously, is um, presenting particular subject matter. We did the uh, Safety at Sea thing. We did the um, the Sea Survival Handbook. Um, I had those those podcasts which I did from on board the vessel. So it feels a bit strange just to be sat here with um, with my many many mice and many keyboards and many monitors which I have here, all displaying bits of information that seem like they may be relevant to what I want to say, but ultimately, of course, only just end up confusing the hell out of me as I'm trying to talk. So look, I'll take it slow and we'll see how it goes. The basic format is uh, I'll just give you an update what's going on and then we'll jump into some questions and uh, and see what people have been chatting about this week. So I guess the biggest update for me is that I'm kind of going to make this the way that uh, I do business. Um, the situation with my company, Spartan Ocean Racing, is that it's just now, as we get to the end of 2022, uh, impossible to engage in the business in the way that we did before. And the majority of that comes down to, say, three main factors. Number one is, it's not possible to get uh, insurance that covers everything in a way that I'm happy with. Now, I know uh, on the podcast and in the YouTube videos for a brief period of time, I was um, putting forward the idea of uh, Edward Williams as a, an insurance broker. Um, I got contacted by a number of people who then said, like, are you sure they're someone that you want to be associated with? And I will say this, I have like no further information on the subject. I've tried to look around as much as I can. I cut out the uh, reviews which I'd done for Edward William. Um, the boat is insured at the moment with Edward William, but the question mark seems to be over um, how often they pay out. Like if you have a, an actual uh, claim that you want to make, um, there's a question mark which I can see people following that line of investigation online. I can see a lot of documents being brought to bear. I can see that Edward William have changed through a number of different underwriters over time. They've been in the business like uh, 20 years. Um, so there's certainly, you know, if there's something really fishy about them, it's not fishy enough to have them closed down. I think the question for me is just, do I want to be associated with it where there's any kind of level of confusion? Like I would say right now, my boat's insured with them. It is, however, not moving, so there's no real chance of having to make a claim as long as all of that uh, gear on the mooring uh, functions in the way that we've said it would. But um, yeah, the you know I don't want to I don't want to go on for this for too long because I don't really have any extra further information. For me, previously, it's always been go and find insurance, and then you know that's your insurance company, and then suddenly where it got like we couldn't find insurance, suddenly it became an area that I had to really, really focus on, like who is going to insure us. And when we got the quotes that we got from Edward William and the coverage we got, I was understandably very excited because suddenly uh, we got a solution and it's a great solution. And it seemed like there's somebody in the marketplace who, and yeah, it's so frustrating because I was doing like adverts for them and uh, struggling over how exactly to word it because I th I thought and felt that um, you know I really was providing something that'd be super useful to you guys because insurance is a concern and then when people started saying hey just check these guys out online <laughs> I'm like oh no 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 I don't want this to not be a good thing because it's not good obviously to be pushing for something forward that uh, might be suspicious and also it's a massive crushing 
blow for me. So um, I, I need to like look around and see if there's somebody else that will insure the boats. But when you've got 25-year-old composite boats in the way that we have, and you're looking to go to some of the world's major sailing events and cross oceans and do all the rest of it, and then you have anything other than absolutely solid insurance, it does make you nervous because, yeah, you can wave a piece of paper in front of the guy at the marina and say, look, it's insured. You can wave a piece of paper in front of anybody that comes along and, and asks. But if you're getting information that they may not pay out, um, it creates an issue because when you go to court, if for whatever reason the insurance company is seen not to be able to fulfill their part of the bargain, then the law puts the uh, emphasis back on you. So I would say to everybody, you know, check your insurance policy, check what it covers you for, what it doesn't cover you for. Um, does it cover you for racing or does it not cover you? Some of them don't unless you specifically get a rider for that. I know I certainly didn't. It was a major issue for us at the beginning of the year when we couldn't do the um, Regatta del Sol al Sol because, yeah, we still had insurance from our old company, but they wouldn't allow us to do it uh, for the racing. So check your insurance policy, see what it's good for. Check out your insurance company. Make sure that they have got your best interests at heart and that they have a good track record of dealing uh, fairly with, and speedily with uh, with any claims against them. So um, because of insurance, uh, massive question marks for me over whether it's even possible to do uh, the kind of sailing that we've done before, taking people out of the boat, which has been my lifeblood for so long, um, now seems to be so much of a headache. The second thing is that uh, the world is different you know, since COVID, the, the travel situation with um, visas with uh, still quarantine things. I'm here in Canada where we've got this Arrive Can app, which we had to deal with until just very recently. I think I was one of the last ones to use it when I previously came into the company uh, country at the end of, uh, the, what was it, the beginning of October I got back. So um, that was a total hassle. And during the short um, part of the sailing that we we're able to do in 2022 you know we had more planned but we couldn't do it all but the bit that we were able to do we still had eight people cancel out of events um within literally like 24 or 48 hours of the event beginning which is a massive headache for those people because you know contractually they lose their money for the event we we can't fill their spot in that amount of time but also for us on board the boat it gets to a point where we can't go to sea if we don't have enough people you'll see Lots of stuff about me on YouTube at the moment, which, uh, you know, we're going to get to what I'm doing on YouTube and me sailing the boat solo. But I can't solo sail the boat with people on board as sort of passengers just watching me do it. There's there's a minimum number of people that you need to be able to sail an 80 foot boat and have everybody doing a job or you need to be in solo mode. And um, it's very, very nervous. Like when we were in Newfoundland about to sail from Newfoundland to the UK, uh, we had two people cancel there, which put us below our minimum number. And luckily, thank goodness, we were able to put that out to the people over on Patreon that support what I'm doing at um, patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And uh, somebody there, Justin, was able to jump in at absolute last minute. He's uh, employed by the U.S. military, so they were happy to see him go off for an adventure that might be somehow beneficial. And uh, he was able to jump in at the very last moment and save my bacon because otherwise we'd literally have had to cancel the event um, 24 hours before departure. So those things massive problem the travel issues and all the rest of it and uh, the insurance thing also a massive issue and I think the, the last thing for me is just that uh, you know I survived well the company I whatever we survived COVID but didn't kind of walk out of it wearing 
top hat and tails uh it was it was carnage it was uh, you know my my marriage broke up the uh the company was on the wall lost my house so luckily able to rent it back from the very pleasant people that now uh, own it they wanted the land at the bottom of the garden we got the house back but um at that point you're kind of looking at a uh, um, a situation where it's what what am i doing this for how how can we do this and it was always an issue with the company previously that um, if you have a lot of people who are putting in three and a half, four and a half, five and a half thousand dollars to come and do a big event. And I will say during the period of time that we ran the company for five years, the price of doing these things, well, I guess it's closer to like seven or eight years because I was doing very similar work before and could see how the industry was going. But um, the cost of the events has gone up and up and up until, you know, we used to charge like two and a half thousand to do something like the Caribbean 600 in say 2014. And suddenly by 2022, 2023 going in now, I could I could ask five and a half, six thousand dollars and there'd be people that pay it. But suddenly you're in a situation where if you get that off 10 or 15 people to come on the boat and then for whatever reason you can't sail, there's that amount of money, 60, 70, 80 thousand dollars needs to be paid back to folks, which is uh, getting to a point where you have to have good big reserves of money to be able to pay out because uh, the reality is having gone through COVID, having gone through the things we've done there, there are no reserves. There's no there's no slack in the system. And so any money that's coming in is being used to pay for things. And that is a, a massive stumbling block and, and, and a massive problem for any company. If you're forever robbing Peter to pay Paul, and then in the end, everybody wants paying at once, it's a massive issue. So I just don't want to be involved in something like that anymore, which creates so much hassle for me, so much hassle for other people. We end up in a situation where people don't get what they want. Um, and of course, we're in a, in a world now of social media where if people want to uh, take their grievances online instead of going through a lawyer or doing whatever it is they want to do, it just uh, you've, you've got massive hassle and it's uh, I'm just not up for it anymore. So the idea now is to, to do the digital content because um, the insurance issue goes away because the boat then is a private uh, entity and you can take the boat and do whatever you want to do. Um, I'm creating content as I'm going. And if anybody comes on board, all they're doing at the very most is offsetting the costs of running the, the, the boat for the time that they're on board, food, fuel, whatever it is. Um, and you can, uh, you, can, you can sail the boat and it's not a commercial concern. And I guess alloyed into that, of course, is the fact that if you are going to run a boat as a commercial concern, it has to meet commercial codes. I guess I did, that would be the fourth reason why I don't want to do it. The, it's getting very, very difficult now to put a composite boat into charter. Um, the, the, the surveyors are nervous that their skill levels, you know, most surveyors who are doing stuff for commercial craft are working with fiberglass, with wood, and with metal. So suddenly when you're working with Kevlar, you're working with carbon fiber, it's just not within their purview to be experts in that as well and then put forward a, uh, 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 an opinion which you can you know base a company and all the risks associated with the company that you can base it on that it exposes them to too much risk so once you start to just make it that the boats are a platform for digital content creation all that goes away so perfect obviously people are not traveling to the boat that goes away and the business model the the way that uh, it goes down is that a lot of people are giving you a very little bit of money um, you know, there's a lot of people now going over to Patreon and putting in either five or twenty or some people fifty dollars a month. There's set things that they get back for that. The five dollars a month is support for what I'm doing, which is great, and all the content that we create. 
and then at $20 a month they get extra videos, extra content, all that kind of stuff. Fantastic, that's brilliant. And if I happen to miss a video coming out on Wednesday and it's out the Friday, or if a podcast comes out a couple of days late, like who could believe that would happen? Um, people aren't like, hey, I want I want my money back. You know, they're 20 bucks a month, it's, we'll, we'll catch it up by the end of the month. So it's a, a much better thing for me, but, as you can imagine, uh, suddenly you go from having something which has been your business for 10 odd years to uh, kind of freestyling, freestyling in a pretty wild manner in a, in a new uh, 21st century method where you kind of create content for free. There's no wage, there's no uh, perks package, there's no insurance, there's no anything. And then you kind of put it out in the universe and, and hope that it works. But the good thing is, it does seem to be working. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. So, um, you know, as someone, I like always to be honest with what I'm doing, honest with the, the sailing we do and the safety things and the way that we make things happen on the boat uh, and, and transparent about what's going on now with the stuff I'm doing. And it's, it's starting to move. We've got over 60 patrons on Patreon, which is brilliant. And that amount of money at the moment is paying half my rent. So, the YouTube stuff is coming up. There's uh, there's a little bit of money starting to come out of YouTube. We've got about um, 3,100 subscribers over on YouTube, which um, is up. I've been doing a lot of work in the last couple of weeks with the footage that I shot from all around the Atlantic this, this summer. And um, with that increase in the amount of content that's going out and the huge, you know, the greater amount of people that are accessing it, suddenly there is a little bit of revenue coming in from YouTube. Although I can tell you if you are, interested if you have a channel which puts out videos which get about one or two thousand views on average um, and you have about three thousand subscribers then you're on about sixty dollars a month so at the moment that is not going to really pay for anything but it has come up to sixty dollars a month from like 20 in the last two weeks so um, you know just keep adding that one percent adding that one percent every day try and make things better and hopefully with a three corner kind of thing between YouTube the podcast and Patreon, there's a way there that um, we can move forward. And the idea, of course, is to create as much content around this this platform uh, as possible. And uh, it was really good the other day, I got a YouTube comment from someone who's like, oh, I see what this, it's kind of, um, it's uh, offshore racing, it's offshore race boats uh, for the average guy. And it's like, kind of, yeah, I think that's it. That's, you know, it's always tricky to when you start a business, work out what's your elevator spiel, you know, what's the 22nd thing that explains exactly what you do. I'm not really exactly sure I've ever got that dialed down for the digital content, but it's taking the lessons, taking the, the skills of offshore racing sailors and applying them to everyday sailing to make people faster and safer. I guess that's that's the conduit that I want to kind of be the <laughs> be the be the guy, be the guides on, something like that. So um, yeah, we're, here, here we are, and uh, as you'll have seen, there's been a lot more Mariner podcast. Behind the scenes, if you don't already access it, there's the uh, Rare Nautical Reads podcast, and that actually is doing very well as well. Each one of those um, uh, episodes on the Rare Nautical Reads gets about 170, 170, 180 people downloading it in the first seven days, which uh, if you're new to podcast or haven't got your head around like how podcast numbers work it's not the same as youtube where everything's in the hundreds of thousands and the millions it it often is in the the hundreds and the just the thousands so um, if you're getting more than about 1500 downloads for your podcast in the first week then you're in the top five percent of podcasts in the world now there is a one percent who are getting 
you know, 20,000, 30,000, 100,000 downloads, but it's a very small amount. And uh, to get into the top 50% of, um, of podcasting, you only need to have about 149, 150 downloads in the first seven days, and that gets you in the top half of all the podcasts worldwide. So if you've got something that you want to share with the world, if you've got something that you want to do, um, podcasting is quite a pleasant way to do it. And if you can start to monetize that somehow, something I haven't uh, worked out yet, then there is a an income stream for you there. So we've got two podcasts. We've got the one where we read the old books. Um, I'm on one at the moment called 15,000 Miles in a Catch, which I'm really enjoying. The guy that's writing it's got an amazing uh, uh, style to it. Uh, the, 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 the thing with sailors, I think, is they end up spending so much time at sea, like witnessing really beautiful scenes and, and um, their lives can be touched by very, very sensitive moments where, you know, someone offers you a cup of coffee when you're past the end of your, you know, your chain, like things are just harder than you could possibly believe and someone offers you a cup of coffee and you realize, wow, this person's such a good person to sail with and you see like dolphins and you see beautiful beaches, you see all these things which just really touch you because the medium of getting there is so hard. The 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 gauntlet that you have to run to to get through to that beautiful morning after the storm is so difficult that um, you have an appreciation for beauty. And and uh, then I think when the blank page is in front of you and you have to write something, you've got all of these amazing uh, experiences and resources that you can pull upon and uh, and put it onto the page. And this guy writing in like 1910 or something, a French guy called um, uh, Raymond Rallier de Batty. Uh, he uh, has an amazing way uh, about it, and and I love, of course, the fact that the book is you know over a hundred years old, and I'm I'm laughing and telling Cat, my partner, about uh, little sequences that have happened in the book, and we're having a giggle about it, and we're having a giggle about a story which was written down 110 years ago, and the events happened 120 years ago, um, and it's still funny and still humor and still part of our discourse over breakfast uh, all those years later that's the power of writing a book and uh, I must say there's after I've read like seven or eight books on that podcast now which has been very very pleasant and it's a I think a fantastic use of this uh, gift of the sailing library that was donated to me uh, about a year ago um, and uh, I love being able to share those but it's uh, it's like a double-edged sword like on the one side it really really inspires me to write a book uh, and on the other side I'm questioning whether if like surely everything's been written there is to you know how how much how much more can we describe a wave how much more can we describe a, a cup of hot coffee after a bad storm it's like and yet <laughs> I, every time I turn the page of one of these books I'm like oh yeah that I know that I know how that goes so um we've got yeah the Mariner podcast the Renault Reads podcast and then YouTube so YouTube has been something which I've been um kind of uh, biting and nibbling around the edges of for a number of years. So I think I started a YouTube channel about 2016 and uh, had one video that like is still the video with the most um, uh, likes. I think it got picked up by a sailing magazine or something. And, you know, in the, in the world of creating digital content, it's all about getting uh, uh, an already successful channel or an already successful platform to mention or direct people to your thing. And then suddenly, boom, that's when it that's when it travels. That's when it goes. As long as you've got content that's basically good enough, you know, it's kind of meet the meet the minimum threshold. Obviously, you're going to be developing your style all the way through. But as long as you've got stuff that meets the minimum threshold, it's then just about reach and like, how can you communicate to people? Here I am. So um, in 2016, I think it was literally just after I started the YouTube channel, a, uh, a like a practical yacht magazine or something like that. Um, 
uh, highlighted on their just electric, uh, oh, it's electronic, their um, a digital newsletter um, that I'd done this video about folding rope, which anyone sailed with me, of course, will know we fold ropes, we don't coil ropes on modern boats. So um, that video's got like 20,000 views. And then it's just like a, a desert until 2018 when I did the videos of me bringing the Open 60 back from uh, Europe, which I still get loads of people watching those and binging them and watching the story. And for, if you have watched those, I tell you, it was just exciting to be there and be finding the parts of the boat and putting the boat back together again and then bringing it off across the Atlantic. It was a really, really fun adventure. And there, I say they're all there on the Mariner YouTube channel if you're interested. So there was a spike like in, in what I was doing. And then it just became background. I think it's too easy to um, push it all to the background when you're involved in your everyday work. And that's what's different now because I made this like fundamental decision. If there's no like solid insurance option, then we just cannot go to sea. And it's the first time in years that I'm in this position. Now you could say during COVID, well, yeah, during COVID, we didn't, like, didn't know what was going to happen next. I was trying to get the Ocean Globe race off the ground. That didn't happen because it got... Uh, it got cancelled, the, the the division that we were in got cancelled by the race organisers. So I was trying to do that. And now it's like, we're just not going sailing with the public. This is not possible. There's opportunity for patrons to come on the boat by invitation and by uh, winning little competitions and things. That's great. But just the whole doing it thing with the with public and that, I just, just, I don't know if it works. I don't really know how anybody else that's still in the industry is doing it. It's, uh, you've got to have some big backers behind you who can just solve problems with a, a wave of their hand. Um, if you want to be in that industry now, which I, I just don't. So um, as I step now into the last couple of months of 2022, um, YouTube is the thing that I've been focusing on and um, and it's going pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm someone who, I guess I'm the ideas guy. I'm the guy that's kind of going through life on, on horseback, you know, not really checking the details. I think uh, my father was very similar and it definitely bit him on the ass a few times. It's bit me on the ass a few times. Um, but it's one of those things with YouTube where it's it's 1% better every day is what uh, gets you out there. Once you start to learn, <clears throat> we hear all this stuff about the, the algorithm and how the algorithm, uh, you're hacking the algorithm and how to get it yourself noticed by the, the YouTube algorithm. All that kind of stuff comes down in the end to just grinding and grinding and grinding uh, in the creative process until you start to find little things that work for you, little thumbnails that seem to perform better than others, little uh, bits of... Um, uh, content which seemed to fly better realizing it doesn't have to be a half hour production with you know 20 hours of editing it could actually be a three minute video with almost no editing it can but you just got to pick it right and that's what we started to do now and suddenly the youtube channel has gone up by about uh, 30 percent on the viewers we've gone up from like three or four thousand views a month which is nothing to approaching twenty thousand views which is getting there and suddenly i can see those little graphs starting to get bigger and bigger and I think it's a it's a lesson for me in something which um, I I can remember trying to teach Bella this when she was little and and she got it so I didn't try to teach her I did teach her it. but uh, we had this um, load of rock delivered to the house uh, like um, stone to go into a French drain that's uh, where the water's rushing across our land and washing out the shale on the driveway suddenly we can dig a trench we can put the perforated four inch pipe at the bottom of it and we cover it in with this broken rock, which each one's about the size of a softball, and um, that's going to capture the water and redirect it, right? So easy peasy. And I put that all in there because a lot of people outside of uh, North America will not know exactly what a French drain is. They're not uh, as uh, commonplace uh, outside of the uh, the US and Canada as I've discovered they are here. But um, when this lot was delivered, it was like a couple ton of it. 
um, I thought, you know, if there's one thing that I can teach my daughter that's, uh, that's useful, it's the fact that um, you have to like grind at problems to, to, to get a solution. You can't sail around the world with, with the voyage around the world in your mind every day. You just have to sail to the next mark or to the next tack or just, you know, to the end of that day or whatever it is. So uh, we got involved in what in our house became known as the, uh, the lesson of the rocks, which is uh, I said to her, and she's 10, you know, she's very small. I said, um, if I've got a job for you and if you can complete it, then I'll give you a hundred dollars. And she, oh, she's pretty excited about that, right? hundred dollars is pretty big, pretty big beans when you're 10 years old. Um, so I show her this massive pile of rocks, which is like taller than she is. And she's like, uh, well, uh, you know, how long have I, how long have I got to do this? And I said, uh, you got a month. She's like, oh, right. Because she thought I was trying to get her to do it by the end of the day. So it's like, you have to do, you know, a bit every day and we don't want to have loads of stress and strain about it. Um, but if you get to the end of it and you haven't moved all the rock, then you don't get paid at all. And of course that uh, then negated the, uh, I'll move a bit of it and you give me 10 bucks. So um, indeed she set off and, and uh, all credit to her, you know, she, first she's carrying them, you know, in her hands because she's 10. And then she realizes, oh, I can put it on the uh, snow shovel and put like, now I've got 15 or so of them and drag them across the grass and put them in where they need to go. And then um, she came to me a couple of days later and she said that she'd seen this, um, like the, one of those little radio flyer red carts that they, uh, at someone's yard sale. And could I lend her $10 to buy it? And then she would knock that off the amount at the end. It's like, okay, that's pretty good uh, negotiating. So indeed we got this little thing. And um, she, she then spent like, I'd like to say every day, but it, it wasn't every day. And there definitely were some days where she hadn't done it for like three days and she'd be getting stressed out about it she had to do it and of course we'd say to her don't worry about it you know if you don't want to do it you don't have to do it but by hook and by crook as it happens with children we got down to the last you know 29th and the 30th day and there was still quite a big pile of stones but nothing that a couple of adults and, and a child can sort out in an hour and um and we did it and of course we made a, a little certificate for her and she got like 150 dollars and we absolutely you know lauded her for what she'd managed to achieve in moving all of these things but the thing that I tried to then always uh, underline with her at any time in the future with any other job that she had to do is that we got to you've got to remember the lesson of the rocks it's that uh, every day a little bit adds up every day a little bit adds up we know this because whether you do it or don't do it that's how it works at the gym whether you do do it or don't do it that's how diets work that's how making money works that's how being successful in anything works you've got to grind it out and to her absolute credit, you know, she um, later on at a, a very um, childlike manner, she she decided that she wanted to get into making like costumes and um, at, like outfits, animal outfits and stuff for, uh, you, you know, she watching stuff on YouTube. So she comes in the first day and she's got like a, a paper, paper mask on. And she asks me, can I bend a piece of coat hanger wire into a particular like, shape for her? So yeah, we can do that. And do we have any foam? Yeah, we do have some foam. And by the end of the day, she's like, attach the foam to the armature until she's got something that's like big enough to put over your head, like an upturned waste paper basket. So okay. Then the next day it's got, it's been shaped and then it's got some fur on it. And, you know, over a couple of months, she ended up making this incredible cat outfit, like uh, the, the massive, beautiful head uh, piece. I guess you put it like a big mask you put over your head that all looks like a, a cat and gloves and uh, things for her hands and what have you. She's like 11 at this time. It's all very innocent. Um, and then she builds another one that looks like a bee and then she builds another one and all the way through 
you know, we're saying like the lesson of the rocks and all the way through, she kept that very basic um, lesson in, in mind and was able to work on projects and overcome difficulties and, and not know how to do something and over a number of days learn it and wait until she had enough money to buy some good scissors that she needed for cutting the cloth. And in the end, she became my hero and my um, shining example of, of a lesson which I maybe yet still have not learned entirely myself which is that you just have to grind things out I'm someone that, like I want it to all work now like if I've decided I'm doing YouTube I want YouTube to work right now I'm not, I'm not waiting for a month for a million people to discover my channel they got to discover it today and when they haven't discovered it by the end of this week or you know I'll wait till the end of next week if by the end of next week I don't have 100,000 subscribers I'm out of this and uh, <laughs> unfortunately that's a, a massive problem because that's how yeah, virtually nothing works like that. So I will always be indebted to Bella for um, for demonstrating to me uh, exactly what that lesson is truly about. It's not just about moving some uh, stones into a French drain. It's that you can apply it to all things in life. And I'm keeping her in mind as I uh, do all this stuff on, on YouTube and the, and the podcast and what have you um, over this month and next month because I have goals which I need to meet. Um, very, very quickly, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the financial fallout from the company stopping business uh, is very, very serious. There's people that still need to be paid back from things that we couldn't do in uh, 2020 and 2021, things that we couldn't even do at the beginning of 2022. Um, and I am dead set, if I can, uh, to, to not go bankrupt. So I've got to start grinding out a whole new way of doing things. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly why I'm sharing this. I guess a lot of people have gone through some really hard times in the last two years, three years. Um, lives have been pulled apart. Businesses have been pulled apart. Um, divorces, all the rest of it. Um, it's about grinding your way back up. And I remember when I first started the company, one of our investors, uh, Philippe, uh, he said to me, we had a particular problem we were trying to deal with. And he said, sometimes in life, uh, you're sailing upwind and sometimes you're sailing downwind. And I think... Uh, COVID and everything that's happened has been a, a tough beat for a lot of people for a long time. Um, so I'm right in there with you. I'm trying to do my thing. My my particular method of doing it means that we can communicate in this manner. Uh, if you've got your story, uh, please do share that with us. I've got an email I'm going to read here now from uh, from Bruce, which uh, has got a few bits about his life and some things he wanted to share with us. But um, it's uh, it's it's a tough go. It's a tough go for a lot of folks. And um, I'm going to try and do my best to be an example if I can to anybody else who's struggling right now just in the same way that Bella has been an example to me and uh, the method of doing that is to get on and make this content so that means good news for you guys it's Spartan is kind of Spartan will always be there in the background I guess if I go around the world again it'll still be under the Spartan ocean racing flag but uh, certainly the opportunities to go on the boats now have to have to stop if you're part of the Patreon group then there's definitely opportunities there to go sailing but it will be on just uh, covering the costs of coming on the boat basis and not um, not anything else because um, man, I don't I don't want to have the stress uh, and I don't want to have the, the 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 legal difficulties, the financial difficulties, uh, all the rest of it that that comes with it. And uh, and I would just say as well, um, you know, with my particular skill set, um, have a look at what the jobs are for me. Like I can go and uh, skip on a race boat, but I, to be absolutely honest. Um, 
you know, there's people that are much better at it who'd be, who'd be picked ahead of me in the queue. Um, there's uh, going and screwing on a super yacht, uh, skipping a super yacht. It's definitely possible. The industry has tightened up its regulation and its uh, licensing since I was last in it, which is like 12, 13 years ago now. So I'd have to go back to school and, and learn more, which is always, you know, fun to do in sailing, but you can't, means you can't just instantly go and make money right now. Um, and we've got vessels here. But uh, the uh, challenger, of course, is in Alicante in pieces. And if we ever pick it up, I don't know. The bill for storing it in, uh, in, in Spain is so high now that it's higher than the value of the boat. So that's just going to kind of come to a wash. And what can we do, right? It's, uh, it was COVID. Um, the big white boat, the one that I just sailed recently, is um, absolutely here and ready to go as a content creator for, um, for the channel. And then we've got Falcon, the blue one, the Open 60. And uh, there is actually a plan for that, which uh, is another part of what I'm going to be grinding out with you in the next uh, year. Uh, we have a very definite plan for that, and I'll be announcing something with that. You know, I was trying to do the West Around the World um, challenge on that boat. Um, I'm still up for doing the West Around the World challenge, but I learned something this summer. Um, we ended up uh, beating with the big white boat, with the Osprey, the Maxi, beating from um, Iceland back to Newfoundland over like 10 days in really heavy conditions and I learned that um, speed for speed the big boats uh, and the open 60 are about the same speed on most points of uh, of sailing uh, the big boat the maxi is better to windward but I will say now that all the information I have regarding their relative speed is all based on the normal flat water polars and not on their uh, wave polars there's a, a different set of performance data for your boat based on its ability to um, handle, you know, increasing sizes of waves. And whilst Falcon, the Open 60, uh, with her big square stern, is an Open 60 that was developed for going upwind, she is still an Open 60 and therefore by design in, and by concept and everything else is really focused and, and uh, optimized for going downwind. Um, so she's a really rough ride. To give you an idea of like what kind of rough ride I was expecting to take going west around the world in an open 60 um i had bought two um race seats like car race seats that you can put five point lap uh, belts a uh, five point um, harnesses sorry in and um uh, and a crash helmet like uh, so that my helmet is protected my head is protected and um some light um padding which is used for motorcyclists that's kind of like connected together via mesh and you can wear it under your clothing to try and protect me against falls and a set of carbon fiber protectors for my ribs that goes on like a waistcoat, um, which is used normally in motocross to, pre to prevent that being the injury that I would get, like cracking a rib or something. That's how rough I was expecting it to be. Going and then beating on the maxi upwind. Like, I don't know if anybody knows much about the Grand Mistral. They were originally mooted by a guy called Pierre Feldman, who created the Mistral race in the mid 90s because the Whitbread race was looking like it was on its last legs and wasn't going to go. Obviously, Volvo jumped in and saved them to, you know, for the 97 race, so fine. And the Mistral race didn't go. But the the boats that were produced for it literally are like the fastest monohulls uh, in the world, like the fastest salute monohulls in the world until the advent of the uh, Canteen Keel uh, Volvo 70s, which took things to a whole nother level. But in terms of going like, all the way around the points of sale, beating and everything else, I would say that the Grand Mistral Maxis are probably the fastest in the world, or one of the fastest. And uh, my recent experience is that going to Wynwood, um, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. And they're very, very strongly built. And uh, it was um, 
very, very high stress situation for us to be beating for so long um, with, with people on board who had not sailed uh, that kind of sea before, that kind of boat before. But in terms of, for those who are more experienced that are on the boat and for myself, it was a brilliant sail. It was a brilliant uh, uh, route. Unfortunately, we did end up arriving a couple of days late, which created some headaches for some people. But it was uh, it, the actual sailing. The boat did fantastically well with um, almost, you know, we had an issue with the engine as we arrived into Newfoundland. Well, the gearbox actually more than anything else, which then just shown to have been, it just been shook and beat around that much that uh, 25 years old as it was, the gearbox, just a part of the gearbox inside and the cones let go. And then we had an issue with the gearbox and couldn't uh, engage the drive. But that is you know an unusual event in the in the in the life of a boat everything else on the boat went very very well um and so i guess i have now got to a point where it's like if i'm going to go west around the world mm, i think i've got a boat which can do west around the world really really well which then of course you can imagine opened up for me the question what are we going to do with falcon then we did all that work to get her back together that is some of the youtube content which i did um a couple of years ago now i had my cousin and people here to fix her up and did a great job she's got a couple things that need doing but um she's you know she's pretty much ready to go onto the water and and be competitive what are we going to do with her if if not this chance of selling a boat like that basically zero and and i'm more than happy to share with folks that um you know when i went and picked up that boat in france i i bought that boat basically for a dollar it was like a, a token amount of money the minimum amount of money you can put into a wire and send it to the the country uh that the owner was in which uh, you know who had the boat before. It's no problem. It's um, Ki- um, uh, Kijiro. So um, Kijiro Shiriashi, the previous owner of the boat, um, he just wanted to get rid of it and have a nice clean slate for his next Fonday project. So he basically gave him a, a minimum amount of money um, just to exchange the title and off we go. So that boat had been on the market since 2006 and it was 2015 when we bought it, or 2016 when we bought it. And so um, that's how interested the market in is in an open 60 with a fixed keel like not at all so we have a boat that's almost unsailable or sellable i should maybe clarify that um but it's a brilliant boat and it has all this potential and all these amazing uh, characteristics to it what what are we going to do with it so i will i will leave you with a little cliffhanger which is a i have come up with a plan it is based on um all of the good work that we've done with that boat already um, it will become a reality in uh, probably early December of 2023. It's an official round the world event. And uh, Kevin, if you're listening, you know which event it is. So uh, that'll be coming soon. Um, we'll talk more about that. I don't want to go on about it too much because I know I've already told you about, oh, we're going to take veterans around the world and we're going to do this and do that. And none of it came to bear, not for any reasons that were anything to do with me. It's just how fate fell out. But you've got to keep making new opportunities with what you've got. So I have a boat. I have a fantastic boat. It might not be something which is very sellable, but it's certainly very saleable. And um, I am going to do my best to make some brilliant content with uh, with the boat. And uh, I think once you hear what we're going to do, I think you're going to be excited about that as well. So we'll do that um, a little bit later on when I've got all my ducks in a row and uh, and the official announcement is out as well. So we have talked about what I'm doing, making digital content for you. That's good. Remember, please, that making free content is not free for me. It's my time, it's my effort and everything else. So if you haven't already, please go over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can support the podcast. And obviously, if we can actually get that going, then um, there'll be a fantastic opportunity there to do lots more of interesting things with boats, um, because uh, the finances won't be so won't be so tight. So 
yeah, Patreon if you want to support what we're doing. So I've got a wonderful email here from one of my uh, Patreon supporters, Bruce, Bruce Williams. And um, I was going to read it out to you and uh, and, and see what uh, Bruce has to say. He says, uh, glad to see you sailing again. He'll be talking about the YouTube stuff and hopefully making headway. I know it's been a struggle during and post-COVID. Well, it has for all of us, but thanks very much, Bruce. I'm sure that's an understatement, but glad you've stayed the course with the podcast and the YouTube. Yeah, and not just stayed the course, but now looking to actually uh, make that the main part of what's going on. He says, have you ever considered a book or an audio book? Well, look, I've got, I'm I'm on it, Bruce. I hear you, buddy. Um, I, I wrote a book at the end of the last race around the world, and now I'm thinking that probably it's time to do something with that. It's a lot of it's written out. It's like 100,000 words of it written. Um, and it got very good reviews from the editors. Who was it asked me to... It was McGraw-Hill that asked me to write that book and then they reviewed it and liked the, the first bits I did, but uh, I just never brought it to conclusion. Did not learn properly the lesson of the rocks, of course. Didn't grind it out to conclusion, just decided, hey, well, you know, if I've written all these words, then surely someone should have bought all the copies of the book by now without doing everything in between. Um, but uh, there's two things I'm doing with that. Number one, yeah, I'm going to look back at that book project because it's something that uh, going into 2023, I've decided either I need to... Uh, bring it to conclusion and release it, or I need to throw the actual transcript away, which is, you know, all the massive stack of papers you can imagine, because either got to be in or out. Like, I can't just live my life looking at the shelf, like, with a stack of papers there, like, oh, one day, one day. One day is just code for never, right? So do it or don't do it, but choose one or the other. Um, the audiobook thing is interesting because um, the what I've been doing is reading over on um, Rare Nautical Reads all of these super old sailing books, which personally I think are absolutely brilliant. And then the um, they added together the way that I've been recording them. I can then draw them together into audiobooks and offer the audiobook of this uh, particular book um, because everything is in the public domain now, right? They're so old, these books, that it's it, you can do whatever you want with them. So I can read them out and then bring those recordings together and then for like five bucks or something offer the entire audiobook uh, for people to to consume so i'm doing audiobooks that's how rare nautical reads is going to decant down into a, a different kind of evergreen product later on um, but yeah my own book yeah i need to do it <laughs> i need to do it uh, i could tell you it's really really good but it's really really good for about six chapters and then it just kind of trails off so um, he says, I'm listening to the Triangle of Bermuda podcast right now. It's so interesting because, yes, I find the law fascinating, but there is a rational scientific explanation that is quite obvious. Um, uh, he says, I literally fly through the Bermuda Triangle on a weekly basis. A majority of our routes are offshore oceanic routes between New York and the Caribbean, South America, and even out to Bermuda. I look down a lot and can see the larger vessels and often wonder, as I watch the weather from 30,000-ish feet, what the perspective of the same weather would be from the sea surface as a sailor, of course, I'm sure you're thinking that. You just see a couple of like little white specks on the water, like, well, it looks pretty good today. Meanwhile, on the surface of the water, people are losing their minds. And if you didn't catch that one, um, it's just a couple of um, podcasts back. I don't know what numbers we're on now. I could actually, I could click something on my computer, which will lead us down some rabbit hole of me getting completely lost in what I'm doing. See if we can make it quick. But um, I did one and I called it um, the Triangle of Bermuda. I think everyone that I well certainly that wrote back to me got what I was trying to get at there you know there is the Bermuda Triangle which is like the law and the crazies and the the the, the aliens although you know hey aliens you know <laughs> if the US Navy says there's uh, UFOs then there's UFOs but um I don't think they're abducting people from the Bermuda Triangle I think they've probably got bigger things on their mind than like 
locating their geographic uh, kidnapping or locating their kidnapping activities to a particular geometric uh, uh, geography that um, I know makes them feel good about themselves. Right? But um, the um, the thing with the Bermuda Triangle is that there are lots of things going on inside there. And one thing I didn't mention on the podcast, which uh, I then saw on a Johnny Harris documentary on uh, YouTube, which I follow, is of course that um, there's been a lot of work done in the um, Bermuda Triangle area, which goes from Miami to Bermuda to San Juan in um, Puerto Rico, um, that it's one of the areas of the world where you may get a disproportionately large amount of rogue waves. And uh, I did see on that, it's the, the guy, the, the creator is called Johnny Harris. He's got a, a documentary channel on YouTube and he did one called um, the Bermuda Triangle recently. Very, very good. And um, they, they've been doing a lot of work on rogue waves, hey? And uh, I, I know I've got my experiences of rogue waves, not like giant towering rogue waves, but, but waves which are like surprisingly big, uh, surprisingly big. Either you're beating into them like, whoa, here comes a monster or that you're going over a normal size wave and then there's a monster trough behind it. And uh, one of the areas that Johnny Harris's documentary uh, shared information from the US Coast Guard and I think NOAA, that um, that, that area uh, just off of um, Miami at the where the Gulf Stream is sweeping north there is an area with a disproportionately large amount of rogue waves. So I was saying that uh, the issues, you know, we've got a lot of transport, You've got a lot of people who are looking to leave from Fort Lauderdale and go over to the, the islands in boats that may not be really ready for it. Um, you've got the Gulf Stream. It's Hurricane Alley. You've got a lot going on there with a lot of traffic. You're going to have a disproportionately large amount of, uh, of um, things happening in there where boats go missing, where people get hurt, where something strange happens. The thing we could also add to that is rogue waves. So between those things, it's very obvious to see why there might be a lot going on in the triangle of bermuda but it doesn't have to be like a time warps and uh and aliens and everything else um bruce continues uh in the airbus um it's literally just the twist of a heading knob or push of a few buttons to offset the course 30 miles and go around a build up or to pick our way through a line of weather well <laughs> it's just a couple of presses on my autopilot button i can go back to watching my uh, my videos uh, and then if i completely ignore all rational and sensible uh, safety precautions, but uh, you don't have to show off with your with your clever knob that turns your Airbus left and right. You know, we've, we've got those. We've got those on our boats. Um, probably not well known, he says, to most skippers, is that every commercial aircraft is monitoring the emergency frequency of 121.5 megahertz on their VHF radio at all times, and especially in oceanic airspace. Okay, so this is where it actually gets quite useful. There's a piece of information here which we could know. If you don't know, your EPIRBs, certainly modern generation EPIRBs, function on two different uh, frequencies, 406 megahertz, which is what it transmits to the satellite with the GPS information that's inside it. Remember, going back to early EPIRBs, electronic position indicating radio beacons, um, they didn't have the GPS position, and it was the satellite saying, hey, I looked down and I saw a signal in this area, and it's only relaying that to a, a station that it goes, a geographic station that it goes overhead, many many minutes later so the information's kind of a bit more well somebody down there's got a problem now of course your gps uh, in your epurb is sending out your exact position that's held by the satellite and then transmitted when it goes over a surface station so the details are a lot more accurate but that's 406 megahertz digitally encoded signal but the 121.5 megahertz is what's used for uh, locating the um the uh epurb once you get uh, on the ground oh my goodness i'm <laughs> Okay, so I have found myself a fountain pen recently, and I've been trying to be very like uh, studious and uh, 
you know, like educated and have a fountain pen. And I discovered, A, they dry out if you leave the lid off. So then you spend about 10 minutes trying to lick the top of a pen to get it working. Or what you can do is do a podcast and put it round and round in your fingers for 20 minutes and then realize your entire hand is covered with ink like you're 10 years old again. So you don't get these problems when you do all your homework on an iPad, which... uh, my daughter also went through a sequence of doing that for a year until the school in the end realized, man, this is not a thing and got back and onto actual pens. And Okay, this is called questions and tangents, so I am allowed to go off any tangents. Has anybody got kids who are in school who now don't learn cursive handwriting? Is this, is this a thing? Did I miss like a step here somewhere? When Bella was like 11 years old and finally went to federal school instead of the um, Waldorf school that she'd been at, suddenly they're doing writing and and there is nobody teaching them how to like connect letters together is that just like a dead art now there's a part of me as a linguist that feels sad that a beautiful art form like that uh has gone away there's another part of me which realizes also of course we're moving into a world where your aptitude with pressing buttons is probably more important but um yeah is that is that like a thing now we just don't teach kids cursive right i'm just going to print like the kids in my class when i was little who only printed they you know (laughs) We didn't have like high praise for them, but I guess that's just, everything's changed now. Everything's changed. Anyway, so there was a point. So fountain pen. Okay, yeah. So 121.5 megahertz transponders. That's what actually helps the rescuers to um, like echolocate down onto your position when they get into the area. Obviously, you will have moved from the position where the GPS signal identified you um, for the initial um, uh, distress signal and uh, and uh, signals which have come thereafter. So 121.5 is a standard function of most EPUBs, but if you get a um, a VHF uh, free, uh, HF radio, which is also does um, the channels used by aircraft, you can you can talk to aircraft on one twenty one point five. And so, you know, back in the day, it was kind of hard to get hold of these units. Um, but now it's really not. And Bruce is making an excellent point here: is that uh, in the event of trying to communicate with someone that you're having an emergency like you're in a life raft or the boat sinking or what have you um trying to do that line of sight with another vessel uh, has its own complications you know if you've got a heliograph or if you've got a signal flare or something like that you've then got of course your electronic stuff your epubs and your channel 70 on vhf but then you've also got the fact that there may well be aircraft over top of you and that presents a very interesting um, possibility and that's what uh, uh, Bruce is getting into here. Let's just continue with his story. So he says um, they were discussing the fact that um, aircraft monitor 121.5 on their VHF radio. And he says, my captain and I were just talking about signaling devices, etc. after listening to a chapter of Sailing a Serious Ocean. That's John Kretschmer's excellent book. And that it's useless to try and signal a commercial airliner at 30 to 40,000 feet. Because quite honestly, we probably have window shades up and aren't looking down. But we are required to and do listen to 121.5 uh, on the VHF for aircraft in distress. We also listen to 123.45. That's a very, <laughs> it's a very wisely chosen frequency. We also listen to 123.45 as an air-to-air communication uh, channel to contact other aircraft for non-emergency related conversation for such things as turbulence or how they pick their way through weather ahead, etc. Okay, cool. So we've got aircraft who are regularly discussing things with each other on VHF uh, frequencies. They may well be over the patch of ocean that you're on. And we have VHF sets which cannot communicate with them. This is a very good point, Bruce. It's a very, very good point. Why don't we have those available? Well, because people would misuse them. 
isn't it? That's that's unfortunately the answer. Yeah, that's the answer because idiots would misuse them. <clears throat> okay, if your marine VHF can tune 121.5 and you're not within line of sight of another vessel from marine comms or maritime comms, it would be absolutely worth your time to send the mate out on 121.5. That's a very good point. You know, when I did the uh, solo race around the world, um, we had... Um, I can't remember what he called them now. Is it like Aviation Band VHF? Is that how they put it? I'm going to have a look on uh, Amazon here because this is, uh, I think we're onto something. I, I know that we had to have them with us and the idea was that we could communicate with aircraft. I do have to say they never exactly clarified to me, um, you know, how exactly I would go about doing that. I guess they just work out the fact that I would, they're just working on the fact that I would work it out as I'm going along. Uh, aircraft, uh, band... VHF um, handheld, something like that. That would, that would do, right? And then hopefully Amazon will come <clears throat> come back with a solution. Yeah, they were just like, yeah, make sure you've got this on board. Bye bye now. And uh, <laughs> like, uh, okay, what am I what am I doing? How does this thing even work? Okay, so it looks like we've got all sorts of uh, options here. Let's have a look at the shopping options. Just going to Google, and I put in um, VHF radio, VHF radio. Okay, that's lots of VHF stuff. VHF Airband Handheld Communication Transceiver. <clears throat> Interesting. Now that's 600 bucks, 600, 700. They're ICOM units. Yesu have got some things. Yesu's got one here that's um, uh, 279 bucks and has got all the frequencies on it. Wow, wow, that's really interesting, isn't it? So it looks like between anywhere between like 250, I've got a good little one here from ICOM with at uh, 389. So for like under 300 bucks, oh, what is this? Uh, Bao Feng, who <laughs> that doesn't really exactly fill us with confidence. Bao Feng, mm -hmm, UV5R, dual band, UHF and VHF radio, 44 bucks. Wow. And Cobra's in on it. So, yeah, you know, actually, wow, there's one there. Handheld ham radio, $60. These are pretty cheap, actually. So it's the marine band stuff. Well, who would have ever guessed that something for a boat would be more expensive than uh, the normal item um, as sold to the general public. But look, it looks like for anywhere between $60, take your life in your hands with that, and $700, you know, take your bank balance in if you want to pay for that, um, you can get a, a, a unit which will talk to an aircraft. How fantastic. Let's see how he finishes up his, uh, his notes here. Um, the airborne tracks go from the coast almost out to about halfway to Bermuda, and your effective range with VHF is much better since you're not trying to call over the horizon. Good point. Yeah, that's the limiting factor. Even with a 5-watt handheld VHF, the limiting factor is the, um, is, the, is the horizon. It's the fact that it can't bend the signal too far beyond the horizon. Um, uh, I know for a fact that any aviator who heard a mayday on 121.5 would perk up immediately from whatever book they were reading, turn up the radio and at least inquire. <clears throat> it's pretty easy to relay that information from there, as all aircraft today have digital comms, HF, VHF and SATCOM. Most have SATCOM, especially if they're oceanic. Just a thought to keep in the back of your mind next time you're in the Atlantic for a contingency. Well, thank you, Bruce. I wonder what we can do with that. Uh, what's the... One thing I was thinking of doing is creating one of these online stores. You can do it with Amazon, and that's like bringing together all of the items which I have in my inventory, um, the things that I know work really, really well, and then creating together in a little storefront in Amazon. Would there be any interest in that? And then I could say, go to the store and you'll see it there, and you'll know it's something that I either know or for a particular reason I'm saying you should have, and then we can, um, we can, uh, we can discuss those things together as to which is the best in, in which particular category and have them in a, a Mariner store on Amazon. 
Um, <clears throat> he's talking now about the fact that they, uh, they've been doing some stuff with furlers. He says, it's been a busy year for my wife and I. We did pull our boat out of the water um, because we're moving and have a baby in December. Haha, <laughs> I had one of those this year. It's awesome. So look forward to that, uh, Bruce and, uh, and Mrs. Bruce. Um, you're going to have an absolute ball with that one. Uh, good luck to you with that. Uh, it'll give me time also to do some much needed work. <laughs> okay, having a baby and I'm still working on the boat. Two babies, that is. Um, I also finally got a bowsprit for the boat. The same guy I bought the Harkin Reflex furler off of had the Selden Carbon bowsprit. It was 2,400 new, which is absurd, but I managed to get it for less than half of that. Awesome. Brand new, never mounted with the deck mounting ring included. Now that I have a new asymmetric kite, top-down furler and carbon sprit. I can't wait to get it all mounted up and try it out. Well, do it before you have a baby, let me tell you that. <laughs> Anybody who's a parent is now nodding sagely. Yes, if you have any ideas to go and do anything, um, unless you're in a situation where your partner's exclusively looking after the child, if you try and do whatever you can to help out. If you've not had a child before, from my experiences in the last nine months, and I am, I'm doing what I can, but my partner, Kat, is, uh, is definitely heading up the uh, the charge to look after the baby but um you have to drastically reduce any expectations you have of even things like leaving the house uh going to the garden center going to the the supermarket like it's a totally different landscape so if you can i go mount all of that lot now <laughs> and go and do whatever it is you want to do on the boat <clears throat> and then you can sit and think about that through the winter whilst you're enjoying your in your new little child in your house um he says, uh, oh, it'll probably be a year or so, though, with the new baby and life, but that's okay as it forces me to slow down, think about it, and take my time with the install. Absolutely. I'll attach a few pictures. As we were lifting the boat out of the water, it's kind of neat to see the keel we have on our Shock 30 versus a standard unmodified Shock 30. In fact, in the picture, we've raised the keel about four feet with a winch to get it on the trailer. It's almost eight feet when fully lowered. <clears throat> Got some lovely pictures here of the inside of Bruce's boat. Oh, little tea, a lifting tea keel. Huh, that's interesting. All right, I've got to find out more about this. You've got a nice car as well, Bruce. Well, there you go. So that's the, I get a, a number of emails like this all the time, people telling me about their lives, and I love sharing some of them. I'm sure Bruce won't mind, because that's the real world of sailing, isn't it? It's the, the stuff I do on the boats I've got is actually the unreal end of sailing, um, and what you've got and what you're doing with your sailing is the, the sharp end of sailing. So um, good luck to you, Bruce, and to Mrs. Bruce with the new baby. And um, yeah, let's have a see. We've got a few others here. Carlos Barrera says he has a question. Um, uh, really enjoyed the podcast and the videos. Absolutely uh, uh, happy to be doing, making those for you, Carlos. It's uh, And I see your name coming up often on the uh, comments on YouTube. So thanks for your support. Um, he says, especially enjoy the podcast when working tedious jobs, sanding and polishing. What is it about listening to my podcast when you're sanding? Like, I, <laughs> it's the, the numbing of your hands is then the numbing of your brain from my voice. Is that what it is? Okay. So during one of the recent uh, videos on YouTube, I asked the question, I think it was a podcast as well. Maybe it was a podcast only, actually. Um, I asked the question, what am I seeing when I see a vessel which has a light which is high and all round at the back, a white all round light high up at the back, and another white all round light at the front lower down. And I'm seeing uh, red, white, red uh, above the center part of the vessel, and I'm seeing an individual red light. And, and uh, Carlos has uh, correctly identified that it's a power driven vessel greater than 50 meters, restricted in its ability to maneuver with that red white red above the central part of the vessel so carlos please uh send me a uh a follow-up email and include your 
uh, address and I have a Smart Notion Racing cap which is winging its way directly to you, sir. Now he says, my question for your uh, Q&A is, what sail wardrobe would you consider for a medium size cruiser racer? It's a Dela 39. He says, we have 110% jib and main, Jenica at 118 square meters, Spinnaker at 114 square meters, Code Zero at 78 square meters, Storm jib and probably adding a staysail. What are your thoughts on the new filmless laminate sails? Would you have all lines, halyards and sheets made of Dyneema? <clears throat> okay, well, there's a few questions in there. Now, I am not an expert on cruiser racers and uh, and I don't particularly know the Dela 39, although I can have a quick look here on my computer and that will answer the question. If you can stand to have me tippy-tapping, doesn't take too long to write Dela 39. My goodness, I've got to like lean around the microphone, lean over the iPad, get to the... Oh yeah, okay, so we can kind of see what that is. All right, so um, what's the... Got a few more details here on sailboatdata.com. Um, fiberglass, 1996, first built. Uh, Udel is the uh, designers, very well-known designers. Yeah, beautiful, lovely. I like that kind of far style keel, um, fractional sloop. Okay, cool. 12 me 12 foot across yeah 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 okay okay sailboat calculations displacement mm-hmm okay well looking at that look if it's designed in the 90s then it's going to have the the initial thing i would look at that is not really about the sail wardrobe i would identify um what you can do with the jibs now this is an area where i definitely definitely get uh stuck so i'm happy to get some help in from somebody else who knows more about this um the jibs on all the boats i run uh, which are all like late 90s boats. Um, uh, Challenger, Whitbread 60, built in 1996. The Maxi was built in 1996. And Falcon, the Open 60s, built in 1999. Um, they all have jib tracks, which run fore and aft, okay? And that's because you need to be able to move the car back into a, a different position for a different sail because your jib sheet should go up and bisect the luff of the sail, um, uh, of the headsail as accurately as possible so you get a fair pull on both the leech and the foot of the sail. Different sails require different car positions. The difference is now that you, you're hard pushed to find a racing boat, a modern racing boat that has fore and aft jib tracks. They have jib tracks that go across the boat and normally it's between the shrouds and the base of the mast which means that you don't have any jibs that overlap. <coughs> now there's, there's a number of benefits to this. If you get a headsail which has got a Yankee cut to it rather than a normal jib cut. So a Yankee cut is when the clue is like high up in the air. And it's very, very good for heavy uh, ocean work where there's going to be a lot of spray going over the deck, a lot of water traversing over the deck. It's very good for visibility if you're operating in uh, circumstances like the Solent or in Long Island or something like that. And you may well get into a number of situations every time you sail where there are boats underneath the jib and you can't can't quite see them. So with a high clue, you can you can then see them. And it's also very good if you're working with a staysail because um, the the major bulk of the sail is uh, in the forward part of the sail. And instead of the sail tending to get itself wrapped around the staysail as it goes from one side to the other, the, I find the Yankee sails will find their way across the stay quite easily. You have to be very cautious about how you connect your sheets on because the um, snap shackles can end up getting sort of stuck on the staysail stay, the inner fore stay. But um, the, it, on the whole, if you use something like a um, soft shackle, they'll wrap their way around nice and easily and you can tack um, a, a cutter rigged headsail combination quite easily. If you've got big... 
um, uh, overlapping headsaws which are bigger than the four triangle of the sail, i.e. 110, 120, 130%, then they're not as uh, easy for, to, to tack them across. And so then you have to have a staysail situation which is uh, removable, which means you have some kind of high field lever and you know that um, uh, Harkin produces one of these. A high field lever is an old mechanical uh, backstay tensioning system that used to use on tall ships where without trying to describe a mechanical system too much through the medium of a podcast, it's a, uh, a, a lever which kind of lifts up off the deck. You attach the backstay tail to it and then um, pull down on the lever and it, it tensions the backstay. Give or take, that's it. And um, Harkin do a version of it. I think it's, is it Harkin or is it Lumar? Well, one of those two. Um, they do a version which allows you to mount and unmount a uh, staysail solution. The other thing you can do for that is to create like a, a, a bobbin and loop situation. There's some bits of hardware you can buy from Antal, which looks like a little um, metal or alloy uh, bobbin, and then a, a loop that passes up through it, and then you bring it down and double it over the bobbin, and that allows you to secure something very securely and in a way that doesn't shake easily and then you have a little um, block and tackle or a pulley system underneath that or something that leads back to the cockpit and so you go forward and this is what we had on challenger you connect the bobbin walk back to the cockpit and pull it tight with the winch and there's a jammer right there that then holds it tight and a lot of um, modern race boats have inner four stays which you tension from the cockpit you can then uh, ease them massively put a line around the, you know, drop the staysail, <clears throat> whether it's roller furling, roll it up, or whether it's something that you drop on the deck, but you can then ease the the uh, purchase system, which you've got attached to the bottom of the stay from the cockpit, and then go forward, put a line around the now sagging inner force stay, pulling it back closer to the mast, and you've immediately then got the ability to tack a bigger headsail uh, across the, the foredeck, okay, if you you haven't got a Yankee cut, or if it's just a really big sail that doesn't want to go through the space left forward of an inner four stay. So um, your staysail, I think, is a very good idea. I think if you've got roller furling on the headsail and then you've got a staysail, which may or may not be roller furling, but it's certainly a smaller sail and it's easier to handle. And then looking at how to control those uh, jib slides on either side. If you've got the older system where it's a four and aft track, you know, it's worth considering uh, looking at newer um, jib lead uh, adjusting methods. If you've got headsaws which don't overlap, then they're only gonna come back like close to the uh, an imaginary line drawn between the mast and the base of the shroud. And that means that you can then in there have one of those frictionless rings which is being held in the air by a bit of um, bit of uh, bungee attached to the shroud, and then you can have control lines. Which, uh, as this thing is suspended, like a on a smaller boat, a foot or two foot above the deck, those lines pull it uh, inboard and outboard, and then the old jib car. Um, position is underneath it and it provides the primary pull down so now the bungee will take it up in the air when it needs to go up your inboard and outboard um, uh, control lines will control whether it you know it's up tight against the mast or whether it's in a more kind of barber hauler position and the down haul will pull it down tight against the deck if you want to close the back of the sail up or as say allow it to go up in the air and uh, then you can pull on the foot of the sail more so you get a lot more adjustment and uh, what you can do with those control lines is you make it so that there's one control line in the cockpit that goes forward and splits into two, doubles back and goes back to the control positions for these adjusters. And that means you have one or two lines in the cockpit which control the, um, the positions of your jib cars on both sides simultaneously. So once you've got 
you know, starboard tack absolutely worked out at the beginning of a race, when you tack over on the port, it's already set up the way you want it to be set up. That's the only way of rationally doing this. Otherwise, you've got like millions of extra lines in the cockpit that you don't need. So in terms of sail wardrobe, staysail, yes. Also, always look at your um, storm staysail. Uh, we storm jib rather because <clears throat> a lot of storm jibs um, I've ended up using them uh, on on race boats as an extra bit of speed you know if you can accelerate up out of a wave trough a little bit quicker you're going to arrive at your destination earlier and that's always the you know that's always the kind of like the the difficult ground between cruisers and racers because cruisers will say well why do I need to learn anything about racing I, I don't go racing no but you can get to the bar quicker. So, you know, there's there's something in that. You can escape that storm system. You can uh, get get to that uh, air, uh, airplane uh, ride uh, on time instead of freaking yourself out. Like, there's always lots of reasons to know how the boat should work, and then you can dial it down if you don't want to use it. So um, having a little bit of extra speed coming out of a, a trough um, and then doing that thousands, if not tens of thousands of times on passage means you get there X many number of hours earlier. So... Uh, being able to use your storm staysail, otherwise it literally is going to stay in the bag for its entire life. But where can it be used? Uh, another kind of staysail, um, it, you know, there's more than one kind of staysail to be had on a boat. You can have a Yankee cut staysail, you can have a working staysail, which uh, may even have a reef in it if you go in old school. Um, and then you can have a tall boy, which is a very tall, thin staysail, which is very much suited to going inside of spinnakers, can give you some extra welly for off off the breeze. The Volvo 60s, um, very quick boats. My Open 60 held the speed uh, record for a 60-foot monohull boat in 2000 um, at 438 miles. And she was beaten out by a Volvo 60. Um, it was Ilbrook um, in 1997. No, sorry, in 2001 um, when she was doing a run up the east coast of the U.S. And even at the time, everyone said, how can you set a speed record, a distance record in the Gulf Stream? But irrelevant, it, it kind of got into the books. But um, having had both kinds of boat and knowing how to push both kinds of boat the volvo 60 the whitbread 60 it's the same boat essentially they are really really sensitive to their staysail you need to get that staysail into play to really power up those kites to really power up any headsail configuration and yet it's not a sail that has its own dedicated stay on those boats it's just like a tag on a pad eye on the on the foredeck but what goes inside there is really really important so as you move into um, having new staysail and stuff, I think you're moving into a better wardrobe of, of sails. Um, 110% jib, if that's what works on your boat right now, I'm guessing that's roller fold at the front, main. And then, you know, as you come off the off the wind, yeah, the sails you're going to need to have. Jenica gets you halfway between your 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 up uphill jib uh, situation and your spinnakers. You don't say exactly what kind of spinnaker it is, and there are all sorts of different kinds of spinnaker. If you have spinnakers which are designed for reaching across the wind, that's probably your Jenica. Then you have ones which are going in front of very light airs. You have ones which are going in front of very heavy airs. Um, as uh, Bruce was talking about in the previous letter, top-down furlers. Maybe <clears throat> don't worry so much about the sails. Have a look at the gear that operates the sails. Because in terms of, you say you're a racer cruiser, so racing's not all of it, but you've got that in your mind, which means you've even got it in your mind when you're cruising. Um, being able to change those sails quickly, being able to change between sails quickly. Like for me personally, um, windage aside, 
the best possible setup for headsoles is that they're all up <laughs> and they're all all ready to go. And all I have to do from the cockpit is pull a couple of bits of string and I've got a sail, right? The worst case scenario is like what I've got now on the Maxi where it's a Hancon jib or it's a big flying sail and I'm gonna have to get it out of the boat and I'm gonna have to go up the front and connect it on and do whatever. So if you're in a race and you can, you know, top down furl a kite when you get to the bottom mark and then unroll your jib, and then uh, get to the top mark and it's got a spreader. So then you go onto your uh, jib and staysail, which then turns you at the top mark and you come back down with your kite up. You've done all that from the cockpit. No one's been to the front. You've got faster. You've got faster for um, looking at the um, activation and handling uh, methods of the sails rather than um, the actual sails themselves. I would imagine that it could be argued that probably the sails you've got right now, condition unknown, um, you've got kind of everything you need. You say you've also got a, a code zero, which is awesome. Um, learning how to use the sails you've got and the the sail handling uh, is something that I'd say is super important. You've obviously got a mainsail. Um, getting how quickly can you get uh, reefs in? Uh, for me, with the boats I've got, a little bit bigger than than yours, but not not crazily bigger in terms of getting out and going to the uh, golf, uh, the golf, the, uh, the gooseneck, I've forgotten the names of the <laughs> parts of the boat, um, the going out and going to the gooseneck and having to do anything with the front edge of a sail is off my list of things to do for 2023. I've literally, since I first started sailing with Volvo 60s and actually with the Open 60, suddenly I had to like get out the cockpit and go and like connect things on at the base of the mast. On the Open 60, uh, first time I sailed it in the open ocean racing, it's just petrifying trying to do that in these boats that are sprinting upwind, you know, 10, 12 knots over the waves and you're bouncing and crashing around, like standing at the mast out the cockpit, feeling very, very exposed, freaking yourself out. Um, I'd want to stay inside the cockpit for everything I could possibly do. That's why I just like to have the head soles they can, now, yeah, windage, you don't want to do that, right? But if you can have methods whereby you can change gear really, really easily, it means that you change sails when they should be changed and you change sails, um, um, without having that feeling of like, do I really have to do this? Which, you know, creeps into everybody's sailing. Like, really? Do I really have to do this right now? Um, I think if you can make your systems better, it sounds like the sails you've already got. And I think the other thing would be sail crossover charts. <clears throat> this is something which um, I'd like to get to the bottom of for the event that I'm going to go and do with the Open 60 with Vulcan. Um, I, I've always used um, sail selection charts and daggerboard uh, positioning charts and ballast charts, which we have all of those for the boats, plus target speeds. And I've done them in a very analog, like paper format. You know, you look at the wind speed and on the instrument, and then you go over to the piece of laminated paper on the wall, and it shows you, okay, this is the true wind angle, this is the true wind speed. You should be on this sail. Just go across in the X and down on the Y, and that's what you should be doing. But there is a program you can get that does that. And I wonder if there's a way of doing that like on an app or something where you can just input anything that you need to know and then you can connect the phone to the wireless network on the boat, which is easily able to show the phone the true wind angle and the true wind speed, right? And you just have like a little app. It's only based on, I imagine like Excel. I know nothing about this stuff, but I imagine it's, uh, you know, <laughs> as always, like 40 or 50 wizards deployed inside the iPad reading Excel sheets. That's how I imagine these things work. But surely there must be a way of doing that so that it's much easier. The point being, uh, again, what sales should you have? Knowing when to change the sales is uh, is super, super important. If you're going to have more sales, then know when to change them. And then you're looking always to make it that a sale can cross over between a couple of different things. And of course, your Code Zero, as we I just did a video on YouTube about Code Zero. And I'm going to be backing that up soon. 
Um, the Patreon um, is going to be developing a lot in the next couple of weeks. It's something that's really, as I've been saying, it's the absolute kind of catch-all and focus of my attention coming soon. It's something I've been a bit... Um, like I've been, I've been crap about it. Let's be honest. Let's. There's no two ways about it. But now with all of the the focus going on to people coming to Patreon supporting me there, it's time to step that up. And uh, what I have already prepared because I've already filmed it at sea during this trip this summer is uh, I did the bit which was on YouTube about this is an open. Uh, sorry, this is a um, uh, uh, a code uh, zero, and um, this is what it's for. Well, the bit that comes thereafter is this is how I put it up. This is how I roll a furl it. This is how I take it down and change it for a jib. And then there's another bit about sailing the uh, Code Zero. And Code Zeros, as I say in the video, are like uh, apparent wind monsters. They make apparent wind. It's, they're, they're like magic. They, you can have almost no breeze, but if you can just get the boat going a little bit, it will make the breeze that the boat then sails to. That's the real secret. That's the real amazing thing about a Code Zero is that in an otherwise windless situation, you can suddenly get this this like propulsive force that seems to be, you know, manna from the gods, that's what it can do. But also a good uh, Code Zero can also work as a, a very good off-the-wind sail, fulfilling that kind of Jenica position, or, or a bit, bit higher perhaps on the wind angle than a Jenica, but it'll give you a nice reaching sail, particularly if you can get that staysail up inside it. So um, what are your thoughts on the new filmless laminate sails? If you're talking about um, 3DI, which I, I'm, uh, I don't, don't come to me for like the, the very latest in what's going on, because um, I might I might be lacking. Give me a little bit of time to trying to work out an answer. But if you're talking about 3DI, um, all of the reports I'm getting back from everybody who sailed in the um, the Volvo race in uh, iMocha 60s with this kind of sail is all saying that they are very very good. They're very very strong, and the opinion of these races is that cruisers should be using them. Now they're at a much higher price point, but if you're getting uh, panel cut sails in the same material. And I don't think we're that worried that stitching these days is so, you know, crapo that it's going to blow out on the seams. You can get, instead of getting a 3D, like a 3D produced version from North, which is made on their big inflatable mold, if you just get a panel cut sail made from the same material, it's a very, very good option. From the performance capability, um, its ability to, to hold shape over its lifetime to give you the best possible efficiency from the sail, but also um, for the uh, longevity of the sail. They seem to be like, Dyneema tough, you know, so um, I think it's the way to go. I know from my own experience on um, a TP52 in Hong Kong that uh, the new uh, 3DI jib immediately broke uh, a load of components which otherwise had seemed to be up to up to the, the rigor of what they've been doing on the boat, but um, with almost zero stretch in the sail, everything else suddenly came under more pressure than it perhaps had been. So just, you know, watch out that... Uh, power it up slowly see what happens as always listen to the rig listen to the boat listen to what it's trying to tell you and uh yeah i think they're excellent he also sneaks in the last bit <clears throat> would you have all lines halyards and sheets made of dyneema look at 39 feet um probably not is the answer to that uh because we want to try and keep uh sailing as uh cost effective as possible and i don't mean that we cut corners when we don't want to or when we don't feel that we have to cut corners um, just to, to, to save on a budget. Some people are not sailing like that, although a lot of us are. But um, the point is that there are still benefits to different types of rope in different types of situations. So we know, of course, that a, a nylon rope, hawser braid, uh, a hawser laid rather, um, is uh, a really, really good line to have for mooring because um, it allows the boat to 
jog and move around it's got 20 percent stretch when it's wet which it often is when it's you know raining and you're having a storm and the boat's bouncing around so it gets more stretchy when it's wet in difficult conditions and is then able to provide more suspension and more shock absorption to the boat as it's jostling around at the dock brilliant that's the boat now you don't want to have a dyneema line in that situation right because you can probably pick up the boat with one or two of those dyneema lines but they've got no stretch whatsoever and the boat's just gonna be terribly throttled bouncing around trying to pull its cleats off the deck so the right rope for the right job now what are the what are the positions of line on the deck that like must not stretch well if you're really really being very competitive then it's possible on a 40 foot boat like a class 40 or something that you're sheeting things on and they must stay at that uh, tension to have the angle to the apparent wind that that you want them to have right but the likelihood is that you're not really operating at that kind of um, that kind of performance envelope and that just putting an extra little quarter turn on the winch after an hour or so is not really outside of the bounds of normality if you're running backstays and you're worried about backstays slackening off absolutely i'd say the tails on those need to be um, sk99 pre-stretched dyneema or something that's definitely within its um, normal stretch characteristics so it's not going to creep and 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 get longer and then allow the mast itself to become unstable halyards halyards an interesting one you know i i'm I'm a big a big fan of of listening to the mast okay and i I think again there's a youtube video coming up about this you can put your ear up against the shroud You, you kind of put it against your ear and then it runs across the side of your cheek and kind of across the side of your eye socket and then clamp your hand onto the side of your head there so you can't hear anything else apart from like the wire and then you put your other hand over your other ear and then close your eyes right you've got to just close your eyes so that um people think you're like a boat whisperer and they, then it kind of starts to freak them out that they didn't know this was a thing but look you you want to be able to concentrate and then listen to what's going on in that rigging we've talked about this before right you can hear the halyard stretching you can hear the things inside the mast moving around fine no problem at all we understand why we're doing that but that point you can hear the halyard stretching and that's the issue with reef lines and with halyards is that they're in positions where over time, given tens of thousands of work cycles, like every time the, the wind puts an extra gust of wind into the sails, um, they stretch a little bit. Remember, reef lines, you should literally grind them so tight that you're grinding the stretch out of them. Otherwise, where it passes up through the cringle on the back of the reef, that's just working all the time. The uh, outside of the rope is stretching and the relative position of the, the eyelet of the grommet and the piece of rope is changing constantly and it's just going to start to wear and wear and wear in that location so you know you but you can do clever things where you have like um all the excess line is uh, a normal class one rope which is uh you know double braid and is cheaper and then the bit which is actually going to hold the reef in the kringle is a piece of dyneema you can armor over your uh, existing reef lines by getting uh, the core of a piece of dyneema and putting it around the outside of your uh, class one rope your double braid rope and then seizing the end so that it's got now a piece of armor in that area and the dyneema is very very um, abrasion resistant plus it won't stretch as much um, halyards yeah again where they go into the mast that's the creaking you can often hear you can actually put your hand on the side of the mast and feel things moving around um, so i would say if you've got uh, chafe issues and that you're identifying that chafe is your is the enemy which it always is but that's an enemy particular to you make sure also on now your boats from 90 what did we say 96 carlos or they were first built in 96 yeah 96 you know it's a pretty new boat on older boats 
um, for Chafe. Have a look also. If you've got a boat from the late 70s or early 80s, it may well be that it was originally produced with wire and rope halyards. And the wire was the bit that went up through the mast and was under load when the sail was up. Um, and that means that it's still got sheaves up the mast. It may still have sheaves up the mast, which are a deep V intended for wire rope, where they should be a nice rounded cross section to, to support and hold a, a, a normal rope, a normal modern double braid or kern mantle rope up there. So if you're getting excess wear that's making you think I should change to a different kind of rope, check the sides of the sheave, check your leads, check that everything's got a nice uh, um, you know, angle to it. Um, if you've got no budgetary concerns, you could put it on the sheets, you could put it on, um, I could say if you've got a code zero, you know, you, there's going to be a lot of load on a code zero on the luff, that, that might be a halyard that definitely responds well to, uh, to, to having a, a piece of Dyneema on it. But um, the boat as produced in 96 was never intended to have loads, which um, would, uh, it only weighs 7,000 kilos, I see. So it's, it's never intended to have the kind of loads that require Dyneema. If you're not getting chafe issues, it doesn't need to step out the way of um, of, of uh, chafe. Um, so if you don't need the load, don't need the chafe. Probably don't need it. I would just be I'd be looking at um, you know, is it is it is it useful to you and that it takes away a problem that you have, particularly like chafe or something. But other than that, no, I would say not to worry about it. Put your money into the systems that help you to sail the boat most effectively. Not just that you've got the absolute sails that you want to have, but that you've got. But um, methods of getting those sails up and down really cleanly and without damaging them and get them up and down efficiently. So your sailing gets faster, you're not on the foredeck as much, you're not at the, at the gooseneck as much, and that you get you know, maximum pleasure out of what you're doing. But um, thank you, Carlos, for that. And Carlos, if you send me your address, then I'll get that uh, cap away to you. All right, time for uh, one more. Let's have a quick seat here. Dan, Dan Seymour. Um, he says, uh, first of all, thanks so much for all the podcast content you produce and knowledge you share. Absolutely love it, especially the on the deck up to date last week as you were sailing past Dover, which is not far from me. And thanks for introducing me to Joshua Slocum. My absolute pleasure, uh, Dan. Uh, Joshua Slocum, as you know, from Nova Scotia, but also the first man to sail solo around the world, like I think a hero for, for many of us, me in particular. He says, I want to share that I too never fancied the whole cold water showering thing. Now, this is the email that I referenced when I was talking about um, cold water the other day. And if you didn't catch that podcast, it's called Survival in Cold Water. And it's me reading through the RYA Survival or Sea Survival Handbook or Survival at Sea, whatever it is. Brilliant book written by Keith Colwell. I can remember the author's name. I can't remember the title. It's probably here somewhere on the desk. I could get it out. But anyway, it's the RYA's brilliant book about um, sea survival. And... Um, I said that uh, I got a couple of emails. It's just one of them from folks saying that they also had identified this thing of, of cold water and their reaction to it. And then realizing that this very, very strong physiological reaction that happens, the shock that occurs when you go into cold water, the involuntary gasp, the shell core shunt when the blood goes from your extremities to your core, which can very much limit your mobility in the water, your ability to complete tasks like signaling, like opening flares like all the kind of things you may need to do in an emergency in cold water so there's the physiological reaction to it but there's also the psychological reaction to it um because you never go in cold water and i shared the fact that you know before i came to nova scotia 10 years ago i had not had a winter for 10 years and i suddenly stepped into a part of the world where um, the ambient temperature here in uh, Mahombe, which is one of the most southerly points in canada um, is it gets down to minus 20 Celsius in the winter, which is pretty darn cold. And uh, obviously you have all the equipment to deal with it and all the rest of it. But uh, the thought of going into cold water is just 
beyond the pale for me. Like I, I, I had an allergic reaction to it in the past, which I've detailed before. Um, I had a physiological, I had a, I had a physical reaction to my body's physiological reaction to entering a cold condition. I was allergic essentially to the chemical my body uses to shut down and close off capillaries. So I would get cold and then I'd come out like in welts and swollen up and blue lips and blindness, unconsciousness, loss of control of my bladder and bowels and like a real mess. And it, and it went on for seven years. So that's now long since gone. I have no more extra reaction to being in cold water than anybody else, but I have this psychological dread of it. And yet I'm regularly involved in situations where as we're hearing, you know, if I've got a um, uh, the ability to talk to an aircraft overhead, send a signal, 121.5 megahertz, I've got my EPIRB on me, I've got my AIS beacon on me, um, I've got a little pouch with that um, uh, aviation band VHF in my pocket, I successfully send a thing, yeah, we're going to be there in an hour, and it's seven degrees Celsius water, well, Chris is gone, because Chris can't do anything less than about 27 degrees uh, Celsius in the water, so it puts me at a disadvantage in a survival situation which you know I'm regularly exposed to so um, Dan says uh, I wanted to share that I, I too never fancied the whole cold water shower thing but I have recently finished reading What Doesn't Kill Us by Scott Carney. Scott is a journalist who set out to disprove the Wim Hof method and the story went off in a whole new different direction he ended up with Hof climbing in, his, in only his pants up snowy mountains that doesn't give the whole book away, uh, but I found it an inspiring read and very informative about the benefits of cold water exposure way beyond survival at sea. The book got me into cold showers, not every time, and I highly recommend it. Oh, and he's a fellow Westerly owner. I've got to, I've got to share with you, Dan, that I do keep leaving that, <laughs> that video about my Westerly up on the YouTube channel because it gets loads of hits because people are clearly way more interested in like 30, 40 foot boats than the stuff I've got, but I don't own the Westerly anymore. A young chap bought it off me and he's been out sailing it and using it so much more than I did. It's such a pity that I couldn't get the most from it. But, um, you know, there's plenty of life ahead. Uh, you know, there's time to go and buy another boat, right? And I'm sure we're going to be doing, certainly it's one of the things that we're looking at for, um, for the uh, Mariner content is that uh, I'll be changing boats uh, as, as often as we can so we can get into new projects and see what's going on. So maybe a Westerly. I saw Westerly Sea Lord, is it called, or Ocean Lord? I always thought Ocean Lord would be the right thing to call a qualification, which comes like <laughs> beyond <laughs> Yacht Master and Ocean Master. Like, you know, Ocean Master is a, a very, very potent and very usable uh, qualification to have for sailing. But I always felt there should be something else, which is like, oh, you really know your stuff. And that that qualification <laughs> sponsored by Westerly would be called Sea Lord. That, that, they'd be like, okay, yeah, what's, so, you know, you, uh, you qualified to take this boat out? Oh, yes, I'm a Sea Lord. That would, that would quiet people down. Um, you know, you're absolutely right to say this, Dan. It's it's one of those things that we all kind of shy away from. And yet if we go into the water in, in not too cold a situation, cold enough situation, we just unfortunately heard the story about the uh, fatal MOB uh, in the Newport Bermuda race recently. I did uh, a podcast about that just a week ago, uh, looking at what was the what was the learning from that. And I, I learned something very interesting. I was, I was reading... Um, another book which I've been reading at the moment on rare nautical reads is called uh, Strange But True, which is the story of um, uh, Captain Crapo and his wife co crossing the Atlantic in the 1870s before even Slocum set off around the world. I did think as I read that, wow, Slocum must have heard of this and then thought, oh, I can do something with this. 
um, you kind of watching influences of the day, picking up on each other's ideas, just as they are now. But um, Captain Crape and his wife went across the Atlantic in a 20-foot dory. Um, I've got to say, the book was very difficult to read, and I'll share with you guys here, because anybody that's still here after an hour and 30 of me talking is probably okay with basically whatever I chat about. So I have this really like complex thing which I have to do, which I have constant ongoing discussions with Kat about, which is that these older books, which all have to be before 1920 six or something because they um they're then in the public domain i'm sneaking in a couple which are maybe somebody might come asking and say why have you got that online you shouldn't be doing that but um you know alan collar's book oh my god that just had to be read but um the old old ones there's a language which is in use for those people and mostly men those guys um who uh it's just not appropriate now and it's like um slocum in no way is there any real evidence to say that Slocum would have been anything other than absolutely polite to talk to and uh, you know a, a reasonable person of his time but he is of his time and he is born in like the early 1800s um, so when he's referring to people of color when he's referring to people of other cultures when they're talking about practices at sea where they are whaling where they're killing porpoises all this kind of stuff you're like what exactly am I going to do here how am I I'm not really one who would ever want to see anything censored like I, I read a report recently which is saying that the BBC in the UK there, they're, they're censoring their database of um, archived uh, uh, shows from the 70s and 80s because they're racist. And uh, I can remember watching shows where, you know, the, 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 the main laugh of the day was some, you know, insult against people from other nations that are moving into the UK. There was one called... Um, Oh, what was it called? It had this grouchy old guy with bald head and, and glasses. Um, I can't remember now. Maybe it would come back to my head uh, as I'm going along. But it was all about, he was incredibly racist and bigoted. And um, and it was done as a shock factor to to promote the show. Was it was it called In Sickness and In Health? I think maybe it was. The, the character, which I believe is called Alf Garnet, uh, those shows are being like deleted from the archive because um, the BBC doesn't want to kind of like have them on their record, you know? Um, and there's a big upswelling against that because it's very important to know like where we were so that we can chart a better course to where we're going. That's a basic principle of, you know, any kind of navigation, right? And particularly like celestial navigation. Um, and, oh man, and added to this, I read uh, a book, like or I was um, listening to it as an audio book while I was at sea and it's called, oh, I'm going to find it. It's right here on my iPad. I can do this without uh, too much uh, complication, right? It was through Audible and it's uh, primarily a kid's book. It's called A Little History of the World. It's by E.H. Gombrick, okay? And I would strongly suggest it for children. Um, thinking of Bella when she was like 12, 13, something like that, and she might listen to something like that in the car if you could, you know, if there's enough in it to get her interested. It's called A Little History of the World, and it literally goes from like um, Neanderthals all the way through to the end of the Second World War. And it's so caringly and beautifully written by this uh, German author, uh, Gombrich. Uh, he also wrote a book called A Little History of Art, I think, or something like that, much better known book. But A Little History of the World, he he wrote it, and then it was just before the Second World War, so the Nazis then tried to get rid of anything that was like teaching actual history. So it disappeared for a long time. It was only, I think, in the 90s when he finally translated it to English. And it's such a wonderful tome. But <laughs> what it did underline to me with big neon sign was that the past is the worst. 
it's the absolute worst. Thank God we are not born then. Like, however bad the world might be right now, it looks awesome compared to how it used to be. Like, for most of the history of Europe, um, at any moment when things might just about be kind of up and flowing, it's quite likely that a horde of Mongolian horsemen would just ride in and destroy everything. Or some massive plague would sweep through and annihilate a third of the population. Like, So I've been very much um, uh, enjoying how wonderful the world is now in comparison to what I've, you know, you get taught history at school and stuff and that's fine, but you don't actually retain it. Um, and I don't think you really learn like the whole lot. You learn if I'm in an English classroom learning English history, it's got a hell of a bias to it compared to anybody else's idea of English history. And it doesn't really bring in what's going on in Germany and France and Japan and Russia and America and all the rest of it, right? So the little, uh, a little history of the world by E.H. Gombrich does that. It's excellent for kids, um, but I, I listen to it as an adult. I listen to it many times on the boat just to kind of like settle things into my head in a way they hadn't before and realizing quite how awful the world was even like, you know, 1800s around there where they're going to, um, it, I'm reading this through the, then the sailing books, that they're going off to the Galapagos and spend uh, two, three weeks there just um, going, capturing giant tortoises and carrying them or dragging them down to the, the shore to then put them on the boat and it's a food supply for them. There's one bit, I'm reading one of the books and uh, porpoises are sighted and the author, Crapo, gets excited because he knows that porpoise balls are on the on the menu that night if they can get a porpoise. I'm like, hang on, only <laughs> only two people can have one each if it's porpoise balls. And they're like, no, 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 what they're doing is like making a fish ball out of porpoises, like jeepers. So I ended up having to like, between the particular words they were using to refer to other people, again, I don't think these people were like, trying to be antagonistic or racist or anything else. They're just using the language of their time. So I have an ongoing thing where I have to adjust what I'm reading so that it fits a more modern audience with, although that's compromising my own internal kind of um, standards on this stuff, uh, I, I feel it's like the only way to get the books back in front of an audience and make them acceptable. So what's in them, the good bits that are in them can be absorbed and used and, and kept in, 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 you know, active reference. But, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Should we, should I be doing that? Or should I just be reading the words that are right there? Because, um, oh my goodness. <clears throat> yeah. It's going to be tricky if, um, if, uh, I have to use all the words that Slocum and Crapo used to describe the, the world and the people around them, because it's not going to make them look very good. Okay, so what were we talking about again? <laughs> this is the great thing with like titling it questions and tangents. Oh, I know what we're talking about. We're talking about man overboard and we're talking about drowning. So the actual conclusion at the end of that um, man overboard uh, report from US sailing was that um, the, the chap that went into the water, Mr. Golder, he had, uh, Colin Golder, had, uh, had uh, died of drowning. And um, they, I think they were using like the way that he was moving and the, the, um, the style in which he was uh, interacting with the people that were rescuing him as the identifiers of the fact that he was drowning. Of course, there's no information about uh, any, any uh, insights from, from uh, an autopsy or from examination of, of him afterwards. But um, the interesting thing from reading Captain Crapo's book, obviously they're in a situation where they see unfortunately many people go into the water they didn't have proper life jackets they didn't have life rafts they didn't have anything they had navigation which was hit and miss sometimes particularly if they'd been uh, in overcast conditions for a long time and they unfortunately literally every single one of these old books somebody dies like it's it's uh, it's just way more commonplace and that's what's making me thinking about how 
history is the worst because it used to just be death and disaster on the high seas all the time. But in the book, Captain Crapo said that the body of the chap um, floated for a long time afterwards and therefore he, he didn't drown. And I think from that I took that certainly at that time in the 1800s and their understanding of uh, medical stuff, the um, the the uh, definition of drowning was that water went into your lungs, and if it didn't go into your lungs, then you didn't drown. You still had air in your lungs, and you were floating on the surface, which unfortunately is the situation surrounding this tragedy with uh, Colin dying during the, uh, the Newport Bermuda race. So I don't know. I'm not sure it really affects anything anywhere because you know if you drowned or he had a heart attack or whatever it was, but if you're going into super cold water. Um, uh, it's something which is really where this began like many moons ago when we started discussing this um, cold water and having an ability to deal with it you, you could go into the kind of shock physiologically that would cause you to have a heart attack you could go into the kind of shock that uh, w- would reduce your abilities way quicker than you might be expecting and reduce your um, uh, possibility of surviving much much faster um, before drowning sets in um, because you are not in any way used to cold water so there's definitely something that we should all be doing about that of course which means uh, cold water showers <laughs> going in the water and most worryingly for me as I look out of the window here now I've actually moved my desk to like 90 degrees here in the sunroom in, in Nova Scotia because that's low low winter sun starts blasting in through the windows and um, it just where the desk used to be it was that impossible to see the screens on the computers I couldn't um, I couldn't uh, continue doing the, the work in the afternoon, or at least that's the excuse I, I told the uh, the judge. But um, no, that means now, is, as I'm turned, I'm looking directly out the windows, and uh, I uh, can see see the boat, and that means I can see the water, and that means that the uh, methods for me to get used to cold water are really very clear, which is that I need to go down to the dock and get into the water and do that every day all through the winter because it's going to get rather cold. So... Yeah, something for us all. I would love to hear your experiences with uh, any of the things we've chatted about today. And we've been through a few good things. And um, any feedback that you've got on the uh, the digital content, which I'm putting out at the moment, and my uh, ongoing mission to create uh, an e-commerce store for, for Mariners. And of course, we've got the announcement, which I'll be coming up with in the next of these questions and tangents things. I've actually just been indicated that... Uh, my uh, entry in this event has just been posted online literally as we're talking so I'm just looking through the write-up they've done about me and I'll share what that is uh, with you in the next one of these which hopefully will be next week we can start to get onto a proper uh, footing with all this stuff but uh, yeah I hope you enjoyed that Uh, great chatting to you thanks for all the emails Carlos send me your uh, address so I can send you a cap and for everyone else I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing you are safe and sound and enjoying your sailing and I'll speak to you in the next one Cheers.